0: bulletproof radio a state of high performance
1: you're listening to bulletproof radio with dave asprey
2: when you hear someone talk about blood sugar you might zone out that's because a lot of us think that it's only relevant to people with type 2 diabetes But blood sugar is a topic that everyone should understand. If you want to feel good and have energy, you need to balance your blood sugar. Research shows that even healthy people have wild swings in their blood sugar right after they eat, and spikes in blood sugar make your pancreas work harder. They also make you older, and they put you at a greater risk for weight gain, heart attack, and stroke. Here's why I'm talking about this. Bioptimizers has a new product called Blood Sugar Breakthrough you take two capsules 15 minutes before a meal. Your body will push carbs and glucose into your muscles for use as fuel instead of fat. That means you get stable energy and you don't have that post-meal crash. Better yet, you can improve your workouts and get better gains at the gym. But the biggest benefit is that it'll improve your overall health. Just go to bloodsugarbreakthrough.health for an exclusive 10% off. For 25 years, I've had a strong passion for understanding the science behind why we age and what we can do about it. One of the most groundbreaking discoveries in the last two decades is senolytics. Senolytics are plant-derived or pharmaceutical ingredients that can help your body drop old, worn-out cells. Scientists call them senescent cells, and in my books, I call them zombie cells. As you age, those senescent cells build up in your body. They live for a long time, and they eat up your energy. There is a hack for this. It's called Qualia Synolytic. Your podcast sponsor, Neurohacker Collective, created Qualia Synolytic. It eliminates those zombie cells and has a clinical study that supports its effectiveness. I really felt a difference in how my body moved after just a couple months on Qualia Synolytic. It's upped my energy level even more, and my joints feel really good. If you're over 30 and you want to use a clinically tested formula to help you feel younger, try Qualia Synolytic. To get younger now, visit neurohacker.com slash Dave and try it risk-free for up to 100 days. Use code Dave at checkout to get 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave. Use code Dave.
1: Today's cool fact of the day is the human brain is the biggest brain relative to body size. A sperm whale has a brain that weighs 17 pounds on average, but the whale itself weighs up to 13 tons. The average size of a human brain or a dolphin brain is only three pounds, but if you want to predict intelligence, it's not really the size of the brain that matters as much as the ratio of the brain size to the species size. This works for species, not individual people. The average dolphin weighs around 350 pounds, And the average human weighs between 133 to 170 pounds. Today for you, I've got UJ Ramdas, who's an entrepreneur and behavioral change specialist with a background in cognitive cognitive science. To make things a little more interesting, though, he's also a certified hypnotist. The reason that I've invited UJ on today for you is that he's actually focusing on gratitude, which is something that I've spoken about in quite a few podcasts and something that I once said was one of the secrets to being a successful entrepreneur or just a successful human being. It's kind of hard to find experts in gratitude to come onto the show because it's not like you go to LinkedIn and type gratitude, but I was fortunate to get hooked up with UJ through our mutual friend, Amir Rozick. So I'm actually really excited to have you on, UJ. Thanks for joining me on the show today.
3: Dave, I'm a massive fan of Bulletproof Exec, and uh, thank you for having me.
1: Oh, you got it. You also call yourself a biohacker, and there's more and more of us increasingly who just say, "Yeah, that's it. I hack the environment, to hack myself, I hack my brain, and all that." Why do you call yourself a biohacker?
3: Well, I think it's just an innate drive and desire to become a better person, and I've always had that drive ever since I was a kid. I just didn't know how to explain it and I was always thought I always thought I was weird or different for trying unique experiments and looking to get more out of my body and my mind. And uh, it was only recently that I realized, well, well, there's a whole community of people who are doing this and uh, all of them are, are doing this in their own way, in their own um, specific niches. So some of them are athletes, some of them are entrepreneurs, but they're all looking to get more out of their performance and that's something I'm really passionate about. So. I guess that's why I I call myself a biohacker.
1: Just to correct that notion, it is weird to be a biohacker. (laughs) It's okay, though. Do you really want to be average? Come on. (laughs) Not really. (laughs) You've also had a chance to talk with someone who I'd really like to have on the show pretty soon here, and that's Robert Greene, who's written Mastery and the 48 Laws of Power, and uh, I've referenced several times that the 48 laws of power really helped me to understand some of the weird machinations of boardrooms and corporate power politics early in my career. It it actually was like night and day. Like you ever see the John Carpenter movie them or they live. I think it's called they live where you put on these glasses and you realize half the people around you are aliens and you take (laughs) off the glasses and they're not. I used to think that everyone in the boardroom was an alien and then I read the book and I'm like, oh, wait, there are people just running by an entirely different set of rules. So it was kind of cool. Why did you choose to uh, to bring Robert Greene in on to interview him?
3: Well, actually, this is a great question because when I was 16, my, I went to uh, the book fair with my father. It used to be like a ritual. Every year, me and my dad used to go to the book fair consistently. And... I remember him looking at a book over and over again, and he never used to buy books. We used to go for me because I, I just love books and I devour books. And he looked at it over and over again, and he told me, if I'd had this book when I was your age, I would be a different man right now. And that stuck with me. That stuck with me. And he bought the book. And he said, this is not the right time for you. Maybe in a couple of years, this is a little bit of a heavy read. Well, that was that was a challenge. I always like a challenge. So I picked the book the next day. And uh, it completely changed the way I look at things, very similar to how you saw the boardroom as not aliens, but people who are are interesting and running by a completely different set of rules. I looked at the world that way and I started to realize a lot of things that I was not paying attention to. It allowed me to see reality as what it is. And I think Robert calls that phenomenon intense realism being and having the ability to match reality for what it is and being able to observe it without judgment, without criticism, without any sort of understanding beyond what is actually happening. And that allowed me to, to make a lot of changes in who I thought were friends, to how I spend my time, to how realistic I could be in the world about my appraisal and other people's appraisal. So it was it was a fascinating read. and I've noticed Roberts continuously produce great work. So I think one of his best books is the 33 Strategies of War. It's a little more heavy and it's definitely more strategic, but for all students of strategy, I think it's a required read.
1: Very cool. So uh, we have we have that in common, and I was pretty impressed because uh, I've been meaning to say thanks to him for that book because it really helped my career in my, my late 20s. Uh, so it's kind of cool you have the same thing.
3: Yeah, I'll be happy to make an introduction to you if you oh, want.
1: Cool. We'll, uh, we'll hit that up after the show. In, sure. in the meantime, though, like you're, you're interesting. Like you studied cognitive science, which honestly I didn't know was a profession or an academic discipline oh. until I was just finishing my information system studies. I'm like, you mean I could have studied that? Like why didn't anyone tell me this was so cool? But you didn't, you didn't finish that, right? You no. went to marketing. Like why the the cutover from cognitive science to marketing?
3: Okay, so that's a you bring up two very interesting points. So I actually studied cognitive science very interestingly because that was the second year it was available. It was a very new program and it was an interdisciplinary program between philosophy, psychology, biology, computer science, linguistics, all the stuff I was pretty much into anyway. And I thought, how cool would it be to get into all these different fields and different departments and find out how to become a better human being how to help other people really become the best they could be so it was it sounded really great and amazing and i started the program and by the end of year 1 i realized they weren't teaching me how to become a, a better human being i was i was learning academia that was maybe recycled several for a few decades if not several years, and I'm an impatient guy. I like results. I like results fast. And I realized learning marketing, I learned a lot more about changing human behavior than I ever did in cognitive science. And I just realized since I can take a lot of the speed reading and the photo reading experience that I have, and double my course load, as well as study other interesting things like analysis and. And do experiments on my body on the side, I realized it was a pretty cool deal. So I learned business, which I always knew I wanted to be into because I knew I wanted to be in control of my time and money. And knowing I could do that as well as learn how to influence behavior and learn practical psychology was exciting for me. And I've always been a fan of, of results over bland theory.
1: When you studied marketing, was there an ethics course you had to take?
3: I think most, as a, as, a, uh, as just a token of uh, of n- necessity, most most professors would say, "Oh, by the way, I have to I have to mention this. You have to do these things by certain guidelines and rules, and you should not use this for bad." But that was like five minutes, and it's been proven over and over in science that morality is never transformed by. Instruction, it's usually transformed by personal experience or values. And there, there were courses we had, like con- consumer psychology, like uh, marketing strategy, that just way overrode some morality <laughs> that most people would have.
1: I, I had the same experience at Wharton. Uh, in fact, they were criticized for not having a business ethics course. And I remember in a marketing course, one of the few ones they had, it's like a super finance school. we did this great mathematical analysis of how it was cheaper to spend a dollar to tell someone that your product was good than it was to just make your product good. And (laughs) and I just remember being so like, like turned off by that line of thinking that I'm like, but it's not okay to do that. Like at at a fundamental, like human level you're selling something if if you're making crap and and saying it's gold, like (laughs) you've done something wrong here.
3: Yeah. And actually what I like to tell entrepreneurs and business people in general is, it's actually really bad for your happiness if you make yeah. a crap product and you market it really well because, A, in the long term, your product isn't going to survive because the best way to kill a, a bad product is by good marketing. So,
1: so you went beyond marketing, though. Now you're into hypnosis where I'm right. guessing they did have an ethics thing because it's not okay to make people cluck like chickens and wander yes. around for long periods of time. <laughs> or, or is it? I've never
3: been clear on that. Yeah. So yes, there there is an ethics board to that. I'm actually a member of um, the Association of Registered Clinical Hypnotherapists, and yes, they do have an ethics guideline. And I think hypnosis is an interesting field because we've we've explored a lot of things in the world of psychology, from um, gratitude journaling and, uh, and positive psychology, but very little has been done on altered states of consciousness. Right. Yeah. Right now, we only have. Um, an EEG machine, fMRI's, EEGs, uh, ECGs that are typically known to measure any any form of mental states. Now we have the Heart Math Institute is doing tons of really great stuff with currents, and I would love to get into that um, as the interview progresses.
1: Sure, I, I think most of the listeners have probably heard a good amount of Heart math stuff. I'm a, <laughs> I'm an advisor to the HeartMath Institute. Yeah. Um, so, but let's let's touch on that, especially when it relates to Uh, To hypnosis. And I'd really love to let people uh, learn a little bit about what you've seen is how hypnosis may reduce anxiety responses, especially ones you can measure with a device like uh, the inner balance sensor from HeartMath or um, even the HRV Sense app um, that I've got out on the iPhone store.
3: Absolutely. So hypnosis basically goes in the assumption that there's the conscious mind and there's the the unconscious mind. So Daniel Kahneman will call, call it System One for the unconscious and system 2 for the conscious mind. And it's defined as the absence of a critical factor or the suspension of a critical factor of the mind. The mind, the part of your mind that, that keeps on commenting, that keeps on judging, analyzing. It just goes into goes out to lunch for a bit. And if you're thinking, I wonder what that voice is, that's the voice. And so it's it's just a con- consistent process. Where you're training your mind to allow yourself to get into a state that allows, it's also called a relaxation response or your parasympathetic response, where you can allow your brain waves to go into an alpha state and sustain yourself in that alpha state. So it's now shown by many, many studies that that state specifically opens you up to suggestions. Opens you up to learning. So TV, for example, is a great example of hypnosis gone wrong. And when people open themselves up to that state, and and they're in alpha, and they have all these ads coming at them, speaking of ethics, (laughs) right? It's 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 now shown that when people watch TV, they're they burn less calories than when they're sleeping, about ten calories less. And Those suggestions go straight into their minds, just the same way when they're in hypnosis. The suggestions typically that they receive go straight deeply into their unconscious, and it reduces anxiety. The state itself is is quite relaxing, but it also reduces anxiety. It eliminates cravings in smoking subjects, and this has been proven if you go to PubMed and search for smoking hypnosis. You'll find several studies that allows C- cigarette smokers typically to experience a change of identity and identity change I think is is the key when it comes to reducing and eliminating cravings at least low level addictions so i found that fascinating and i found just certain hacks that you could do with language and nlp and hypnosis very fascinating which is why i i got more into that and and i used it for myself i used it for uh, some clients and it was a fascinating way to learn more about human beings, about how we function, about what works, what doesn't.
1: So define NLP for people listening. We got a lot of people driving their cars. Some people are into language hacking. Some people aren't. So what is NLP and how do you use it in your practice?
3: So NLP is expanded into neuro-linguistic programming. And neuro-linguistic programming originally was was founded, if you want to call it that, by Richard Bandler and John Grinder. So one of Math student and a linguistic uh, professor, and they basically modeled some of the greatest therapists in the world. Therapists like Milton Erickson, virgin Satir, other salespeople, people who were extremely good at what they did. So think of them like early biohackers in the sixties and seventies. Yep, and they looked at various habits, behaviors, and attitudes that, that some of these exceptional people had, and they broke it down into strategies, tips, and tools, and techniques. So they called the entire process modeling, and they reduced it down to language. Obviously, you could reduce it down to body language and, and verbiage, but they reduced it down to certain processes that could be run, for example, on people who had phobias, and they developed something called a six to seven-minute six, seven phobia cure where people went to psychologists or psychiatrists for years and years, and now within seven minutes with something called double dissociation where you see yourself, see yourself. So you dissociate yourself twice. You eliminate your phobic response. And they've developed several cool hacks like that that allow them to use language to influence another people's reality.
1: So are you using language to influence my reality now? Did you just NLP me? We're always NLPing each other, Dave. (laughs) You know that,
3: right? We're we're using the limit of our language to influence each other's reality.
1: That's uh, really what podcasts are about when you think about it. Uh, My intent is is very much to do that, to influence people's reality by interviewing people like you on the show. Uh, You also use something called tracking, right? When you're looking at people's behavior outside of just their words so you can use NLP more effectively. Is that... Kind of a good explanation of how tracking works for you.
3: Can you give me a specific like, example?
1: Like observing human behavior so you can measure unconscious behavior. So things like body language, the way you move your eyes, uh, um, subtle shifts, imposter, things
3: like that. Absolutely. I actually pay more attention to body language than words, Dave. I just, I just think words are great. I think words can be very powerful and effective. I think majority of our cognition is unconscious. Yeah. And... People, it's, it's been found actually in research that when people are are asked to lie, they control their facial expressions more than they control the rest of their bodies because they feel a lot of their they're going to be read is based on their face. Experienced by language, people who, who study by language, there's a great book called uh, What Everybody's Saying, and it's by a guy who's been in the FBI for several decades, and he talks about how. The legs are the most honest part of the body. Really? Yes, because from a limbic response level, the legs are, respond to fire or flight. And they're responsible for movement. And they're the most honest part of, of a person's body. If someone's looking to make an exit, if someone feels that they're, they're under threat, if their limbic system starts to fire up, the legs are the first part of their body to, to move.
1: So if you're a marketing guy, which means that you want to lie to everyone, what do you do with your legs? I don't know like crossed, cross-legged right now. <laughs> um, no, and in, in all seriousness, um, I mean, what's your read on me? I mean, I, most people are listening to this, not watching it on YouTube, but it's on my YouTube channel. I mean, am I sending off any vibes, like, since you've been on the show? Do you watch all the time or do you sort of tune in when you're trying to pay attention?
3: Well... I don't see all of your body right now, you, so you're
1: just seeing my chest up.
3: I, yeah, I see your chest from from your chest up, but I think I made an observation when we started the call that you, you looked like you were you were just getting stuff together and you you were a little rushed.
1: Oh yeah, totally. It's because we started interviewing about fifteen minutes late, so I <laughs> just like pulled up to the house and then my Skype crashed. So thank you Skype for that update. Not
3: anyway. <laughs> uh, no, you look you you look and feel great so far. Oh, well, thanks, man. I, <laughs> yeah. It,
1: so do you actually, as a trained hypnotist, do you watch all the time? Like, can you turn it off? Or do you just be like, oh, people are just chilling. And then you like turn on the hypnotist vision. And you're like, that guy wants to run uh-huh. for the door. That guy's hitting on that girl. Like, do you have like matrix vision that you can turn on and off?
3: Dave, it happens on and off, but I, I enjoy this. This is oh, it's what fun. I love. Yeah. I, I enjoy this. I never want to turn it off. It turn obviously, as the day goes goes by towards the end of the day I'm less sharp than I am the beginning of the day which is why I tell anyone if you want if you want to really see me and want to get the best of me see me early
1: in the day so that this is part of your practice for building just your own personal awareness of the world around you rather Absolutely. than something you, you turn on off okay that that makes sense and, and of the other hypnotists I know I think that's what most of them would answer like you can get more if you really focus but most of the time you just notice the same way that you might notice it's light outside or the sun is behind a cloud or something, you just pick up more about people because you're trained to pick it up.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think people who are really good at any field, look at doctors or, or, or surgeons, they have very specific verbiage and for that specific field. Okay. So they know the their, the anatomy really well. They know parts of the body that I won't even know how to spell uh, or pronounce. and They have a very, very keen sense of awareness. and understanding of that, that set of words. So, some
1: of the movement guys are like that, uh, like Kelly Starrett who's been on the show, runs San Francisco CrossFit. Uh, he just watches someone walk in the door. He's like, oh, they've got a weak lateral something or another. And, you know, their right gluteus maximus is undersized. And, you know, <laughs> and he can That's tell exactly that in it. three steps and I'm always just blown away. I'd, I'd love to develop that kind of physical awareness, uh, but you've got the, sort of that on the social emotional front as well, it sounds like, or maybe not as well, but instead.
3: What, what's great is Paul Ekman, who uh, who's done decades of research on emotions around the face, mm-hmm. he has, I believe there are about several, I mean, 56 muscles in the face, and he's developed a training called the Facial Action Coding System that allows you to distinguish something called microexpressions, and microexpressions is something you can't fake. It's something that is deeply unconscious, that is limbic, that occurs on the face for just a fraction of a second and allows you to read people fundamentally so much better than, than you would. And the training itself is you could get it online, you could download it, you could get it on a CD. And within a few weeks, you get to see this in people, in, in friends and family and lovers and business settings that you didn't see before. It's like, a light in your brain turned on and you started to notice all of these subconscious emotions that were always there, you would never paid attention to. And everybody can do this the, with a few weeks practice. So if you haven't done it, I highly recommend you do it.
1: All right. We'll put links to that in the show notes. Absolutely. There's another discipline that, that shares this kind of enhanced awareness, and that's tracking, like tracking animals outdoors. If you talk with guys like Cody London and his school they know where the animals are like in a hundred yard circle they just know and and they know because they've learned to look at micro signs that you and i would completely not see and what it is is it's enhancing the scope of your awareness so you've done a lot of training to enhance your scope of awareness of the emotional and and kind of physical interaction And, and after all that work you came up with gratitude and the five minute journal which is kind of not what I think most people would expect was, was where you'd apply this. Why did you end up with gratitude after becoming sort of this neurological, uh, neurological hacker for lack of a better word, you know, where you're looking at all these funny behavioral patterns that are invisible to people like me, um, gratitude, what's the deal with gratitude?
3: Well, I think if you look at the research, Dave, gratitude is just such a game changer on, on so many levels because. Gratitude is really the the fundamental emotion which has a cognitive aspect as what well, as well as an affect part of it. For example, gratitude, if you look at the research, is is divided into acknowledging a benefit from outside of you. And which is the cognitive aspect. So you have to pay attention to it. And you have to your prefrontal cortex has, has to be active for that. As well as you have to feel it. You have to really experience the joy. Of, of having received something and those two connect and allow you to reshape your thinking in a very real way and, and it all happened frankly complete by complete accident so a good friend of mine alex icon and i we were just taking a walk and one day we were talking about business we were talking about habits and, and hacking and, and behavior and morning rituals and he had a morning ritual and i was i was telling you about my night ritual and every night for five years or so, I've done this thing where I I opened my notebook and I, and I reviewed the day. And early on, I, I used a gamification technique where I used it to allow myself to write down my goals and figure out the actions I'm taking towards it. I used to gamify the actions that move me forward. But then I just started to, to use it as a way to review all the good things that happened in the day because I'd heard so many good things about it and read the research behind it. And so because I was biohacker, I was pretty intense about it. <laughs> it took me five, 15 to 20 minutes. This is, this is not the extensive version. The five Journal is not the extensive version of, of what I did. <laughs> we realized it was just way too much for most people. So, so I was talking about my process, and he said, this sounds great. How about we, we create a book that allows people to do it? Because I used to write the questions out by hand every day. I saw the value in that, but I, I, it took me a couple of minutes to actually get it and once i did i'm like this this sounds great and i alex icons is just amazing at design and creation like product creation and i'm the science guy and and it was really cool to work on this project and, and just look at all the research behind it so there's actually a bunch of research behind this is what the book looks like if you're watching this on video and the format is is the same for every day so we looked, looked all the research we look at what's the simplest thing somebody can do to become happier every day that is proven by science and it doesn't take a lot of time to do? And the first question, as soon as you open the book, is what am I grateful for? And this is typically to be done as soon as you wake up in the morning. If you look at the primacy effect, the effect of doing something as soon as you wake up in the morning, It can have a disproportional effect on the entire day. You've heard of people stubbing their toe out of bed. This is the exact opposite of having a bad bad hair day. And and there are three things, no more than three things. If you want to write more than three things, you can fill in the edges. (laughs) But that is to keep the constraint of the time. A second is what would make today great, or to make a give a better question. What can I do to make today great? Which is, as I'm sure you know, Dave, an effect of priming the brain. You're priming the brain to look at the actions you can take later on in the day that will make the day better. So there's research to show that people, just by thinking they're going to watch their favorite movie, increase their endorphins level by 27%. Just the anticipation can be an incredible source of well-being and happiness. And last question in the morning you ask is, what kind of a person do I want to be today? What's my affirmation? And that's it. Typically, it should take you three minutes at night, right before you go to bed. This is not the 20-minute version that I used to do. <laughs> this is, what are three good things that happened today? Or you could call it three wins.
1: It's kind of funny. Uh, when I tuck my six-year-old daughter in at night, I ask her that. What are the three things you're grateful for today? Just same thing. Like It it affects what they think about when they go to sleep, right? Do you want to think about the good things or about the bad things? And...
3: Absolutely. And there's, you talk about the research, there's great research to show that people sleep better. Once they write something that they're grateful for, they, they experience better quality of sleep. They experience a greater sense of closeness with their family and friends and increases pro-social motivation, the ability to do acts without needing to be told to do them. Uh, and the final thing is, what's one thing I would do better? How could I have made the day better? And that's just to get a sense of, how do I keep improving? Because that's, I think, one one of the primary drives that I have in life, and I would like everybody else to have.
1: If everyone would do just one thing every day to improve themselves, uh, the world would be pretty different. Uh, yeah. That comment reminds me of um, what uh, Commander Mark Devine from SealFit talked about. And that's kind of baked into the, the Navy SEAL ethos and just the way of being where every day you do something like that. And the high-performance clients I work with and people who are attracted to the Bulletproof site typically just think like that, and they consider it odd and bizarre that there are people who wouldn't think like that. <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> It's the alien race, Dave. Yeah, it, must, it must be uh, those you put on. Put on your blinders or take them off, depending on what it is. But, absolutely. But okay, so gratitude helps you sleep better. But like, what does gratitude actually get you?
3: So here's my theory on it, based on all the research, mm-hmm. and this is not double blind test at all. But this is, I think, pretty pretty accurate. Reverse engineering of what the studies tell us, I think, it expands our self-concept. So we have unconscious limits of what we can accept—the the upper limit of what we can accept and a lower limit of what we can accept. I'll give you an example. So it's difficult to, to explain it in terms of happiness, but let's move to something more quantifiable, like weight or money. So let's let's look at look at you know someone what someone weighs. Everyone has an upper limit. Of what they're uncomfortable weighing. So for somebody, it could be 20 pounds overweight, where their, their gut starts to show and, and they don't fit in a certain size of clothes anymore. For somebody, it could be if if they've cheated on a bulletproof diet like a couple of times a week, they're like, oh, I, I can't do this anymore. And that's a very different limit. For some people, the lower limit would be having having to buy new shorts and new pants or seeing some ribs where they weren't seeing them before and what gratitude does it allows you to see the positive and not just see the positive acknowledge that affect the affect component the feeling is really important because it encodes the fact that you you're expanding what you're seeing that is good in the world you're expanding your self-concept of how much you can accept, how much positivity, how much growth, how much improvement, how much money, how much discipline you can actually accept. And it's very difficult to be grateful just for yourself, right? So it's usually something that's externally directed. Most people are grateful for their friends, their family, for things outside of them, even if, if it's their health. They're grateful for the circumstances that allow their health to be optimal or bulletproof. And that allows them to know that and always stay resilient to obstacles, to, to mistakes. It's been found people who, are great, who experience gratitude journaling as an intervention are more resilient. They, they have actually higher prefrontal cortex activation in times of, of difficulties, which is, which is huge. Because that the main difference of people who are resilient versus people who aren't is, and they've done FMI research on this, is resilient people activate their prefrontal cortex. They actually start to think about problem solving as opposed to people who don't, where their limbic system goes off. Their limbic system is their fight or flight, they start panicking, and they get into that negative spiral.
1: So gratitude leads to resilience, which leads to higher performance. Absolutely. And that's the reason that I'm such a big fan of gratitude. <laughs> uh, what else does it give you?
3: So it actually, um, one of the oldest studies and the first studies in gratitude was done by Robert Emmons. And the very first study was just people writing some, something they were grateful for. Once a week, five things they're grateful for for a period of, I believe, it was 10 weeks. And there were a bunch of interesting effects. So three conditions. One, people write things they were grateful for. Two, people write things that they were hassled by. And a third, which is the control condition, which is just events. So people write five events in the last week. And they were tested for multiple things, including happiness, how much they exercise. How, how they felt about people around them, et cetera. And 10 weeks later, people they found that people in the gratitude condition exercise 1.5 hours a week more than people who are in the control condition, which is substantially higher considering it's only once a week. It's not daily and it's only one exercise. The second was their pro-social motivation actually increased, which is they started to do more things for their their friends, their family, their colleagues, people they're, they're in business with. Because they started to attribute all of these good things to them, they felt a sense of reciprocity. They wanted to do things for them because they recognized how much and how lucky they were to have these people in their lives. It's been shown over and over again that appreciation, especially expressing appreciation to people, on multiple levels can be extremely effective. John Gottman, who you might have heard of, who is um, the foremost researcher on marriages and what, what holds keeps marriages together and what keeps marriages apart. He can tell within, I think right now, but like within three minutes of meeting a couple, he can tell whether they're gonna stay together or not with a 90% accuracy, which is pretty pretty scary when you think about people, someone who can look at by language and, and cues He talks about a five to one ratio of positive affect to negative affect for a thriving relationship. And gratitude improves that substantially. Actually, it's one of his seven principles for making marriages work is a Thanksgiving exercise where people share with each other what are the things that they're grateful for each other. And one of the side benefits of the Five Minute Journal I'm finding, Dave, is people are are telling me My relationship with my wife was so much better because we do the journal together and we share with each other what we're grateful for. And it's completely transformed our relationship.
1: That makes so much sense because one of the things that that I've learned and things that I do with my clients when I take them through the 40 years of Zen program is that gratitude is, is the first step of forgiveness. So if you can find something to be grateful for, even if your day was absolute crap, <laughs> and you still <laughs> dig out that gem, uh, it lets you let go of whatever you're holding. You know, the, the the guy who cut you off in traffic, or you know, your boss yelled at you, or whatever it was. Without that spark that comes from gratitude, you're not going to be able to to do forgiveness. And forgiveness is not telling the guy that you forgive. And forgiveness is you just stopping paying attention to it, and it just it has no more power over you. Otherwise, yes. when you go to sleep at night. What's going to happen? You're going to think about that instead of thinking about what you're grateful for and, and all the other things. So I I think your journal is a, is a neat hack because it's a very small amount of time, in order to get this info down. Why is it on paper? Like you're you're killing trees, chopping them up. It's you know nicely bound. You know why didn't you make this some kind of you know cheesy iPhone app?
0: <laughs>
3: it's funny you ask because <laughs> we actually have an app in progress right now. Is, um, it, is it cheesy? Okay. Not, I don't think it's going to be cheesy. But um, the, the original reason why I why made it on paper is because there's something that fundamentally happens yeah. when you put pen to paper. It's true. And, and you start writing. So there's an entire science devoted to um, the experience of, of coding, handwriting, and understanding personality traits through looking at handwriting. It's called graphology. It's, it's recognized in courts as ways to find out whether a person is lying or not. But also, what it does is when your brain looks at your handwriting, it your brain begins to notice that, A, hey, this is something that you've, you've committed to yourself. There's a great book called Influence by Cialdini, and there he talks about an important principle of influence called commitment and consistency. And people who write something down are magnitudes of times more likely to follow through on that action as opposed to just having said it to somebody.
1: It's funny, Napoleon Hill was the first guy to say, "You know, write it down, put it on a mirror. I, I did that when I was 16. I, I said, I'll be a millionaire by the time I'm 23. And I did it when I was 26. So I don't know if it worked or not, but you know, it's a single <laughs> data point, but it was pretty cool. And I didn't write and stay a millionaire. So, of course, the company went bankrupt a couple years later, but it was a fun <laughs> ride, right? Uh, that's the harder part. Get rich and yeah. stay rich. So if you're doing exactly. affirmations,
3: that, that last one matters. <laughs> <laughs> stay. Yeah, for the, for the people listening, yeah, make sure you keep that stay in there.
1: <laughs> Live and learn, right? Absolutely. Uh, I've experienced something different, though. People... Under about 25 who grew up with technology uh, interact with the world in a different way. Mm. And I'm rare in that I, this, I guess this coming month I turn 41, but I've had my own computer since I was eight before DOS was around. I had a, a pre-DOS wow. machine. Um, leave it to, you know, my dad was in tech, so I got his <laughs> hand me down, k 2 uh, And... What that means is that I interact with the world using a keyboard very effectively. And I've done some like very heavy-duty personal growth work in the course of biohacking myself. And one of them was, you know, you have to write with a pencil. And it was, you know, write like all the horrible things you think about yourself, like a really tough exercise. And I said, no, I'm using my laptop. And you know, I kind of fought with the, the teachers about that, of this course. And finally I won. And I typed it out and and it was like so good that they like – anonymized it and read it like as part of the training because it was like so negative and dark (laughs) but i think that that when i talk with people much younger than me 10 plus years they are losing that pen to paper because they were told to write and after that they just typed like like their interaction with reality is different than the way you would what are you about 30 ish 35 ish
3: actually
1: 25 are you serious Yeah. Dude, you look a little older than that. you got to work on your anti-aging regimen. <laughs> well, so you still stick with the pen and pencil. Do your peers all do that too? Like in terms of do you, do you notice this effect?
3: So I'm I'm different in, in a sense. I'm an avid journaler. So okay, I have like that's three what. or four journals going on for multiple things. Um, a couple of them are online. Okay. And a couple of them are offline.
1: And you think the pen is more powerful than the keyboard for that?
3: I think the pen can be useful when you're looking to uh, reduce – like uh, a bunch of data. For example, I use the pen when I'm looking to make incisive decisions. I'm looking to like cut out a bunch of like nonsense that I don't, don't want my brain to throw at me. So when, when I'm looking to reduce, problem solve, I usually do it with pen and paper because I find I write down only the most important thing. When I'm looking to brain dump, I usually do it on a keyboard because my hands can move a lot. Just, my brain can just basically speak, speak to my keyboard.
1: Got it. So you're looking yeah. to, to have to do the filtering process that goes through. Exactly. All right. Not to get too like into this. I hope everyone listening thinks this is interesting too. Just, I don't know <laughs> if you pay attention to how you interact with your data, but as someone who hacked the way I interact with data, this section <clears> matters. <throat> do you use a special pen or do you just use whatever pens in front of you?
3: Usually I use the same pen for the journal.
1: Got it. That, that doesn't surprise me either. Like yeah. I, I once had a gift, someone gave me an $800 celluloid pen and I'm like, <laughs> that'll be my special pen. And then I realized it was like one of those, uh, Fountain pens, and yeah. I use it three times. I'm like, this is way too much work, and I stopped doing <laughs> it. So that was my plan to have a special pen, but it fell through.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> nice. It's it's just the, the the routine, the ritual, right? So you just follow the same thing on the same time with the same pen, and it just builds a certain anchor in your head. It just builds a certain certain sense, a certain feeling. As soon as you, I start opening the journal, I already start to hack into the state.
1: Yeah, so the ritual of journaling at night builds its own power. And Absolutely. ritual. And even if you're like a hardcore skeptic rationalist, and, and there's a lot of people who really like Bulletproof who are um, in the rationalist community, Ritual still has neurological impact, whether or not you want to be cognitive and rational based on everything. The fact that you get additional performance from ritual for no apparent reason might scare you if you believe you're fully rational, but it does work. So if you're rational, you should do things that work. So you can chew on that (laughs) one, but (laughs) there's something to this ritual thing. Absolutely. (laughs) Now – I asked if you'd be up for giving a discount code for people who want to try out your journal. I'm not making money. This isn't like an affiliate thing like that. This is just a, um, a discount code for people who want to check this out. So uh, thanks for listening. And uh, UJ, thanks for coming on. What's the code for people who want to check out your new journal?
3: So they can just go to www.5minutejournal.com. And after they fill filled in their information, the final page before they check out, just write down the code is bulletproof. Really simple. I'm a huge fan of Dave and and his show and his material. I've been following it for for a while now, and I really appreciate all of you listening. And uh, I hope you enjoy it. You're welcome to contact me. My email is uj 5 com. And uh, thank you so much for having me on, Dave.
1: You got it, but you're not done yet. Because there's one question that I ask everyone on the show. And the question is, what are your top three recommendations for people who want to perform better, want to kick more ass? I don't mean top three journaling or NLP or anything, just your entire life's journey. What are the things that matter most that people should, should know about?
3: So the first thing is as soon as you wake up, make gratitude a practice. Just make it a practice. Make, make it something that you do every day. Even if you don't do the journal, make it an emotion. Make it a way of being. As soon as you wake up, if you don't have time for an extensive morning routine, that's okay. But just allow yourself to wake up with that sense of, of gratitude. It can really make a massive difference. And I know you interviewed Mark Devine, which is one of my favorite, favorite interviews, actually. He mentioned the same thing. It's so incredibly critical that we do that. So that's the first one. The second one, actually, thanks to you, eat bulletproof and become a student of your body. It, it really it's really changed a lot for me when I've started to notice what I'm, what foods I'm sensitive to, how my, my clarity changes, how I I feel a lot more sluggish when I eat certain foods, and I log everything. So if you eat bulletproof, and become a student of things that you really gravitate towards, for example, I really enjoy a drink called Fresca, <laughs> right? Which is which is. Chia seeds and lemon, and it's, it's drunk by the runners of New Mexico.
1: Isn't it? I grew up in New Mexico, by the way. So uh, Fresca is just like a cheap brand of soda, right?
3: Okay. <laughs> I'm probably getting the name wrong here. But um, but it, it was mentioned in the book Born to Run. Okay. And uh, he mentions how basically these runners use chia seeds, lemon, and honey, I don't use honey. And they usually marinate it overnight, and they use it on their long runs because it allows them so much fuel for their body. And I love how much clarity it gives me.
1: Oh, it's chia fresca. Chia fresca. Okay, yeah, fresca is a like an off-brand soft drink in America. <laughs> <laughs> chia fresca. I got it.
3: Okay. <laughs> That's hilarious. Okay, I know. And uh, and the third one is maintain a meditation practice. My meditation practice has been crucial to my performance because it just helped me stay so on top of things. I, I just know when I get into um, I get on my seat and I get into this just just to stay and amplify. It it I haven't quantified this as yet, but it has been so crucial for me at, at times in my life when I really needed it and it's it's really made all the difference for me.
1: Thanks for sharing those, UJ. I, I appreciate it. And uh, where are you based?
3: I'm based out of Toronto, Canada right now.
1: Awesome. It's good to see some fellow Canadians, although I'm not really Canadian. I'm just uh, one of those Californians who who moved up here, but I at least <laughs> like being in Canada. So. It's a
3: great country.
1: Thanks again for being on the show. And we'll put links to all of the books and researchers you mentioned, uh, even Bandler, although his books are entirely indecipherable. And <laughs> we'll put links to the 5-Minute Journal and uh, to your work as well. Talk
3: to you soon. Talk to you soon, Dave.